Louise Erdrich, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. I needed your new novel, The Sentence, more than I knew. This beautiful book about books and book selling and second chances and messy love between parents and children. I love this book. I love Tuki. Can we set this book up for listeners? Yes. And thank you so much. I am so happy to be on your show and to talk about this book with you. Thank you. This is your 31st book. It's your first after the Pulitzer Prize winner, The Night Watchman. It's a little different. It's much more intimate. It's told in the first person. I am in love with Tuki, who's the narrator of this book. She has gotten off to a bit of a rough start. Right. Should we, should we tell listeners how the book opens? I don't feel like that's a spoiler. I feel like there are other things that you and I will stay away from. Right. I think we can start with the spoiler. Okay. Okay. We meet Tuki when she's um, illegally moving a body, I think is the best way to put it. Oh, that's that's a very generous way of saying uh, <laughs> no, she, she's body snatching, okay. she, but she does it for love. She does okay. it for love. Many of her mistakes are made for love. And she does end up actually meeting her husband this way. He's the arresting officer. Actually, she knew him before. Oh, okay. But they they have this kind of previous arrest record reference between mm-hmm. them, but she's never done anything this serious. And I think it wouldn't be fair to tell the reader why this is more serious. Body snatching isn't really considered much of a crime. Surprisingly, I, I couldn't find enough about modern day body snatching to, to really impose much of a sentence. I thought she needed to be working one off. So it becomes a lot more serious. Although it is serious in itself. That's the big question, right? What do we owe to the dead, to the living? And then as a bookseller, what do we owe the reader? What do we owe the book? Right. But Tuki does eventually get released. She gets released a little early and she ends up becoming a bookseller at a store called Birchbark which quite resembles yours, (laughs) your wonderful store in Minneapolis. Yes, it it does. It does resemble the store. I didn't want to impose too much on my my staff. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have enough to contend with, Mm -hmm. right? And that becomes obvious in the book as well, that they have a lot to contend with. The thing that amazed me is there's a note from the publisher that says, you were writing this in real time over 2019 and 2020. And readers know that you write these really wonderful, epic stories, but I don't feel like you've ever written anything in real time before. No, I've never done this before. And it came about completely by accident. Mm-hmm. I had started this book over and over and over. And I tried to finish it every year. And I would start it in November. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I finally decided this was the year. It mm-hmm. was 2019. I really wanted to finish it. So I promised myself that I would finish it. And many times I thought this is not going to work. And then it got to be too late. You know, Mm -hmm. I had to finish it. So I was contending with events that occurred in Minneapolis. Right. And I've never done anything like this before. Mm -hmm. I've always had hindsight and other voices to rely upon. In this case, I did too. There were so many good accounts of what happened, but Mm -hmm. What I really relied on most of all was my daughter screenshotted everything that happened during that time. All of the screenshots from all of the texts. So nothing got lost. And I was able to look back with it. It was such a, it was so 
foresightful of her. She knew I was trying to write this book and that we were just trying to go from day to day figuring out what was going on. When you say you started this a while, did you start this before Night Watchmen? Yes. Or- yes. Oh. Just the beginning. But then, mm-hmm. so just the beginning, but then another beginning happened. <laughs> There's a beginning that we were talking about. Right. I'd started it originally where the second section starts. And then I had this line come to me while in prison, I received a dictionary. And once I wrote it down, I had this entire voice come to me. So that beginning was written relatively quickly, quickly for me. And I followed this voice all the way through. It's funny. I think most writers feel that if you have a strong voice in a book, it's kind of chosen you. I'm not sure where that comes from, but Tookie seemed to choose me and I kept writing in her voice. So she was the first character from the book that showed up for you then? She was. Okay. She was the first character. I'd always wanted to write a ghost story Mm -hmm. and I always wanted to write about what it was like to be haunted because I feel that so many of us are and all of the events that occurred in 2020 and 21 seemed to involve a sense of being haunted. That was what was odd to me. That's why I kept going. It became not just a personal haunting, but a country. It's a country we're haunted by our racist origins of dispossession and exclusion and slavery. And, you know, there's such a cruel set of beginnings that come along with all that is valorized in American history books, you know, and the many, many, many buildings that are called pioneer this and pioneer that. So that haunts us. And it became obvious, especially in the spring of 2020 and onward, that we had not dealt with the ghosts of our past. We had ignored them there we had tried to erase them we, we all know that we have a lot of a lot back there to to reckon with and then came a very serious ongoing i hope reckoning tookie is haunted by a customer who's died there's a customer who literally will not leave the store she's called flora she's well intentioned but she's also problematic she's not a bad person but she's a handful even in death she's a handful <laughs> <laughs> and she gains power yeah which yeah. is maybe that's what happens with being haunted that ghosts gain power unless you confront and deal with them anyway she gains strength she emanates a scorched smell Mm-hmm. She, she begins to manifest, right, as time goes on. And as there's more isolation, and this again, this was something I wouldn't have expected, but our bookstore did have to really scramble to right. figure out how to survive as a business and how to keep everyone safe in mm-hmm. the store. As I'm sure you did as well as a bookseller, yep. we were juggling everything, trying to keep staff paid and safe and keep the books coming and you know, everything that had to happen. And then there's a ghost on top of it. Of course, of course, there would also be a ghost. (laughs) But I don't know if you can imagine certain customers who might haunt the store. I don't have a specific customer in mind at all. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed inventing our Mm -hmm. ghost. But there is really something to her as well. She's a kind of ethnic 
fraud, but in a lowercase way, mm-hmm. because she has invented her persona to match some ideal that she imagines she could be as a Native American, right? Mm-hmm. And she's gone through several identities, several tribal identities, and then come up with something that she thinks will will work. This is not uncommon. This happens quite a bit. It's it's happening a lot in academia. So it's her that won't leave the store. And so she, in a way, is a person who has haunted herself. You know, <laughs> so it does have layers of complexity and meaning. I had the title for a very long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wanted to write this because I also had collected a lot of sentences that I liked. And I didn't put a lot in that I'd collected for this book. For some reason, I really had to trim it down. I enjoy writing to a title. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because there's so many different layers. I mean, the sentence is the title of a book within the book, and I'm going to let readers discover what that book is. It's also obviously a reference to Tuki's imprisonment. I mean, she serves many years of her sentence. But it is, of course, if you're a bookseller, I mean, there's a great line that you cite from Proust (laughs) that comes into play later. Yes. People can discover that. But it was nice to see Proust pop up in the middle of, I I will say, I've only made it through the first volume and I've only ever made it through Lydia Millay's translation of Remembrance of Things Past. And I know there are other translations that I should attempt, but I had one in me. It was Lydia. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You've got one. I will own it. (laughs) Trollope. Same thing. I had thing. a couple of Trollope in me and, and a couple of Balzac and a couple of Flaubert mm-hmm. and maybe one Henry James. And that was <laughs> after I read Combe to Bin's Master that made me go back and say, I really should finish the Bostonians. I really should. Yes, and I did. And it was really enough. Should. And I was okay. <laughs> but this idea of sentences and coming back to sentences and the multiple meaning. The and the multiple packing, meanings. Can we just talk about those layers and how much fun that must have been for you as you're wrestling with this book and events that are obviously happening in real time? And yet here's this idea. Here's the spine of the book in a way, the sentence. It's, oh, it's it is. Spine. It is. And it's what selling books is all about. It's about sentences. And some writers are, are sentence by sentence writers and some are paragraph by paragraph. It's different with every writer. and. I think I'm a sentence by sentence writer so that I have to have something like that first excitement, that first discovery of the sentence. Oh, and of course, Proust comes back and forth in the book. One thing she does that she is introducing herself and she is asked what she reads and she says Proust. I mean, I did this all the time. I mispronounced every writer, everything. And I did this continually. I probably still do it because when you grow up without a context, without conversation, when you just grow up with the word, you're behind in the general give and take of book talk. So I was, and so she is also. When you write, are you working in a linear fashion through the story or do you have moments that you then construct around? I'm not sure I'm asking that exactly the right way but oh it makes complete sense it's different with every book Mm -hmm. my favorite way to write is having the the end in mind okay it is when i can when i can write to an ending it's 
it's all good. Then I can relax into putting the pieces in and making sure that there's enough in there to keep the reader going. I love some suspense, some sense of what happens next. That's one of my favorite things. So that's what I would like. However, most often I don't have an ending. I don't Mm -hmm. know my ends exactly. And the ending grows organically out of the book. Mm -hmm. It's also all right, but it's not as reassuring. Tuki's husband, Pollux, and I do love his name. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) I could just see him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's also ex-tribal police, though, and he's living in a moment where he has to reckon with his own past. Right. What happens in this book is policing becomes a family, would say, conversation, argument. There's much pain involved. The reckoning that he has to go through includes arresting his wife mm-hmm. and his, his daughter is out in the protests and she gets tear gassed. And also the American Indian movement, he's part of the patrol that goes out to ensure the safety of the Native American community and the buildings and all the things that are so hard won for the Native community. And so he's really having some deep questions asked of him, but he's asking them of himself as well. And I don't want to really go too far into this. So that was the only way I could really see talking about the things that were happening is to make it a conversation with different points of view and different emotions attached with people who love one another, but can't see the same picture at all. And in a smaller way, we see this with Tuki and Pollux because he believes in spirits. She's wondering a little more about spirits, but she believes in ghosts. She's, <laughs> she goes to the store and there's Flora waiting for her, ready to create chaos. Every day. <laughs> and it seems like a tiny bit of semantics. And Pollux does explain why he feels the way he feels, but it's actually not a tiny piece of semantics. It brings us back to names and the power of names and calling people and places and things, whether they're objects or ideas, by their actual names. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As he says, there's a great deal of power in, mm-hmm. and that is true in, I think, every indigenous culture. There is a very close connection between your name and your spirit. And names are dreamed, names are given, names connect you to your world. It's very different than the Western way of naming people. And you can be named after someone or nicknamed, and you probably have a legal name. So with every person, there are many names, many names. But the important name, the one he's talking about is, is the name that the spirits know you by. So the spiritual world would know a person by the name that has been dreamed specifically for that person. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a world of spirituality in which he participates continually. So I don't know that a lot of people really think of urban indigenous people as participating in a lot of ceremonies, a lot of ceremonial life, but that's exactly what happens. It may not be what people generally think of as 
being out on the plains in a forest by the ocean, whatever. It's in the city. And there are so many connections in the city. So I wanted to have that in the book as well. The fact that he has he is living in a city and he is participating in the spiritual life every day. He is part of his own tribal spiritual traditions every day. And like names, books connect us in so many different ways at so many different points. I know books have gotten a lot of us through the bulk of the pandemic, which obviously is continuing. But you also have this wonderful line in the book where you say, books aren't meant to be safe. Oh, yes, that's right. (laughs) And then that writer who's in the book, Mm -hmm. Louise, Mm -hmm. when Tookie tells her that he thinks a line in a book actually kills. Oh, that's the other sentence too. One of the other many mm-hmm. sentences that a sentence in a book actually has the power of life and death. Louise mutters, I wish I could write a sentence like that. <laughs> oh, that's the writer. <laughs> and whether it's me or not, it doesn't matter. It's like any writer. It's like, I want to write a sentence that has that kind of power. Books aren't meant to be safe. They really should blow our minds. They really should take us in new places. And and you don't have to read science fiction and fantasy to no. have that happen. No. You can read poetry or memoir or Henry James if that's really what you want. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, we, we see that all the time. We see any authoritarian regime comes in and the first people they go out after are the poets, mm-hmm. booksellers, the writers, the journalists, novelists, everyone who has an independent idea and can express it. And those things are actually dangerous. They're meant to disrupt people. But they're also meant to comfort. The thing that I think happened during the pandemic, or it's still happening, is people is that people turned to books as a solace. Tookie has a customer in the book who I love. (laughs) This guy is great. He's read everything. And she gives him a nickname until she realizes that something's going on with him. And then she starts calling him by his name. And I'm just flipping through my notes for a second because I love this character. Oh, dissatisfaction is what she calls him for the longest time because he's read everything. And she keeps suggesting lots of things. And she suggests everything from James Baldwin and Colson Whitehead down to Yajesi and Murakami and Siebold. And he's like, no, I've read all of it. That's based on several customers. Mm -hmm. People who come into bookstores have often read everything in the bookstore. And it's very hard to find something for that particular person. It's such a great sense of satisfaction when you come up with something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You also have a lot of love for Lily King's Euphoria, which is a novel I adore. (laughs) I'm so pleased to see it pop up here in a couple of places. I was like, yeah, that's, that's a stay up all night and read that tiny, tiny book that just includes the entire world. And it's also, I think, in, in Forbidden Love, which, you know, not only is that a great intellectual book, but it's also one of those catnip books. And I I love that about it. You really want to read about a complicated woman with complicated relationships. (laughs) That is every page of Euphoria. (laughs) It delivers. 
that tiny book delivers. Yes. You have some wonderful book lists at the back of this, and I'm just going to grab my galley for reference because the titles of these, and some of the titles of these lists will make more sense once you've read the book. So that's that's my caveat there, but Ghost Managing Book List, Short Perfect Novels, which I totally went out and bought a couple of books that I didn't have on this list after reading it. Sailboat Table, Freeman, Books for Banned Love, Indigenous Lives, Indigenous Poetry, Sublime Books, Indigenous History and Nonfiction, Survival, Friendship, Adventure, and Incarceration. You're a bookseller as well as a writer. Are these lists that you sort of keep going in the back of your brain just daily, or did you create these lists for this particular book? Oh, I have kept several of them going. Yes, but they're created just for the book. And I blame them on Turkey because they are very subjective, you know. Mm-hmm. They're all books that I love and books that I, I think many of our booksellers try to put into people's hands. And I can see them on your shelf in back of you. <laughs> <laughs> There's some, you can definitely see some of them. You can definitely see some of them. There's some also in boxes that no one can see right now because unfortunately I have to do some maneuvering in this very small space. (laughs) This is a big space. But I think that's the beauty too of being able to hand sell a book is turning someone on to something that they might not expect. I actually, as a child, I quite liked those Moomin books. And it turns out New York Review of Books has released two of her adult novels. Really? Which I just got, and now I'm dying to start them. And I don't have the titles in front of me. Oh, actually, hold on for two seconds. All right. So one is called The True Deceiver, and the other is called The Summer Book. Good title. Yeah. Ali Smith has written the introduction for The True Deceiver, and yeah. The Summer Book has an introduction by Katherine Davis. And I'm very excited for both of them. <laughs> I'm going to squeeze them in somehow. Yeah. Yeah. But to be able to follow a writer like that, from childhood. And of course, Moomins are ridiculous creatures, but it was fun. It was weird. I appreciated them. But I had no idea that she had written novels for adults at all. And now I'm kind of like, hmm, let's see what happens here. And they're tiny. They're very, very, very tiny. Oh, they are, aren't they? They're super petite. I mean, great. Summer House is 170 pages and True Deceiver is 181. Fit into the short, perfect novel category. Right. So, yes. So, I'll read them. Your short, perfect novel category. I, I love this list. This list is so oh, great. That's it's so good. It's Sula. It's Waiting for the Barbarians. The Conrad surprised me. Now, the Conrad, I'm going to need to sit with for a minute before I go back to Conrad. <laughs> right. it's, it's a hard sell. <laughs> but it's, it's different from his other uh-huh. books. It's a very mysterious book. Okay. Do you update this list? Is that a list that changes with time or is this sort of a top 10 desert island kind of list for you? Oh, well, as soon as I finished the lists, I thought of an equal number of books that I left off as anyone does, right? Oh, completely. Yeah. So they just are their continual. I should have looked at the shelf talkers I'd written through the years. I forgot to do that. We've saved them. So I was putting them into a sort of a baseball card binder. Oh, that's cool. Have all our shelf talkers and look at them. Mm -hmm. I'm still doing that. And I should have thought to look at them and see which ones I recommended. I didn't. Now I'll have to have a shelf talker list. That would be really fun to see. No, I was thinking actually of Mosin Hamid's How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, which still, it's written in the second person. So it's really intense, but it's that seductive you. Yeah. And oh, 
It's great if you have a chance. Okay, I'm going back to have more extensive lists. Oh, all right. Okay. I think there's a lot to be said for writing very tight, short novels. Strangely, I've been reading the giant novels lately, uh-huh. and I don't know quite why that is. I guess it's just once in a while, it's like traffic. You suddenly get these huge <laughs> books, and that's what I've been reading lately. I just read Kim Stanley Robinson, The Ministry for the Future, which was great. Oh, okay. Um, I have a Hanya Yanagihara has A Paradise. Yep. That is to conjure with. That was one that. of my favorite reads of the year. I'll be able to put it in the paperback. Oh, good, 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 good. I will. Favorite reads, read of the fall because it's, mm-hmm. a, but it's my favorite read of the year, I think. It comes out in January, actually. And it's no. sitting on my desk because I'm waiting. <laughs> I kept thinking as I was reading it, how can, how can she know all this? How can she be right. reading this? And the same with Kim Stanley Robinson. And well, I'd missed Ministry for the Future, but I'm excited when it comes out. I'm excited to talk to people about it. Did anything surprise you while you were writing the sentence? You're working with all of these moving parts and a cast that's relatively tight, but it's not the tiniest cast you've ever had in a book. It's also not the biggest, but there are, there are a good handful of folks in the bookstore. You've got Tookie's family. After Tookie, it was anyone that could, could deal with her, probably. I mean, she has a whole other life that's not in the book. Mm-hmm. And that's who she knew and what happened to her. She, she has one sentence about some people. Yeah. She loved or she, she hated, you know, or she had a complicated relationship, but it's just like two paragraphs. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to write it not to have a discursive book, but to have a lot of action and scenes and dialogue and, you know, set it in a present that was where something was always happening and changing, where things were always changing. Would you ever go back then and write Tookie's prequel? Or do you feel like that's just what it is and it's where it needs to be in this book? Sometimes I wonder, you know, people who write the short, perfect novels, right? Mm. Do they have a big, long novel that's left out of it? Right. And so, and do they want to go back? And they never do. I don't think anyone on that list wrote a sequel to one of those books. Mm -hmm. They were just these intense, they were like visions or or super concentrated narrative dreams, you know? That's what they were like. But this one, I keep wanting to think that I would go back, but I don't think I can. I don't think I can do it. It is tempting, though. <laughs> she really does have a great voice. And, you know, when I refer to second chances in the start of this podcast, she's not the only person who gets second chances in this in this book by any stretch of the imagination. But hers are really revelatory. And she ends up really being ground in ways that I don't think she was expecting. You were possibly expecting, but the character definitely wasn't expecting. And it was just such a pleasant surprised that she could be so honest with herself in a way that I wasn't expecting. I didn't expect it either, especially since she starts out body snatching. You know, she's like, (laughs) really? She's going to do it. But like I said, you know, there's a reason and so many things she does for love don't turn out and don't turn out and then start to. Mm -hmm. And she starts to change in herself as well. And I suppose that I had to write someone who would have some sort of change in growth in their behavior because mm-hmm. <laughs> because 
so many of my characters don't <laughs> or may, may, may regress. She's a force of nature, Tookie. Oh. She may not know it, but she really is. I don't think she she does. She has absolutely no confidence that she yeah. can do anything useful or interesting. But she read with what she calls uh, what murderous attention. And during this time, well, the bookstore also began to partner with the Women's Prison Book Project, which is nationwide, but it's centered in Minneapolis and sends books Sometimes women request books or they just send the books to people. So this is something that I, I kept knowing or hearing about and just the, the power and the importance of reading. And so it turns out to be the only thing she is trained to do. She doesn't come out of there with a higher degree and much else, but she knows how to read. And I think once a person knows how to read, that makes all the difference in the world. What do you want readers to know about the sentence? I mean, we've been dancing around storylines because this is going to air (laughs) on the book's pub date. So we're going to let people discover the beauty of this book. I will say it has a giant beating heart. It is one of the most profound books that I've read in recent months. But what do you want readers to know? Thank you for saying that. As a writer, I don't know what I want people to think or feel. I can't tell people how to read the book. And I think that's what keeps me going. This sense that I don't know, and I'm writing the book to find out, and there aren't conclusions to come to. I like it that you can enter another consciousness. So if there's anything, it's the shared consciousness that a book brings to a reader. Okay, so we know that you're going to be updating some of the lists at the back of the book for the paperback. Oh, yeah. Well, for the next edition. Right. But what's next for you after this novel? Are you working on the next book already? Are you thinking about the next book? The way I work, I always have something that I started and discarded or maybe didn't discard, just temporarily put on hold, let's say. So, yes, I'm working on another one. And I always have something I'm working on. Writing is a, a way of living for me. It's not something that I think of his work. What's the best part of book selling for you? Oh, it's that moment that we talked about. It's when somebody's looking for a book and you find this book that you think, oh, you're going to love this. And there's this feeling that you have. It's kind of an elation or a connection with somebody. And then if the person comes back and says, oh, right, that book, it just blew me away. Thank you. Dissatisfaction always says, what else you got? (laughs) What do you have next? I do love that character. He is a good guy. He is really, we've all encountered someone like that. Every bookseller has that story. Right. No matter where you are in the country. Yes. Every bookseller has that story that that you know. (laughs) Who has read so much that there is no way to satisfy that person until suddenly you put your hand on a book and pull it out and the person goes, oh, I haven't read that. <laughs> and you're just like so happy. It's a good life book selling. It's a really, really good life. It is a good life. Yeah. I'm so happy to talk to you and to talk about this and to talk about book selling. 
anytime I can talk to a bookseller. What we do is special and it's charming and it's a little strange and we're a little strange. I mean, one of the things about people who come into bookstores and people who are there to to help is that we're all a little strange. Yeah. <laughs> I'll own it. Great thing. <laughs> I will absolutely own it. And that's the beauty of it because, I mean, you're looking to connect. You're looking to tell a story. There's a reason we're all there. (laughs) And that's the great thing, too, is you know when you're in a bookstore that the other people there have some part of them that is like you. And yes. It's a really nice way to live. Louise Erdrich, thank you so much. The new novel is The Sentence. It's out now. Thanks so much. Well, we hope you enjoyed the interview with Louise Erdrich and her new book, The Sentence. Welcome to the TBR Top Off this week. My name is James. And I'm Margie. And we have three books to add to your to-be-read list this week based on the interview and the book that you just heard about. It is a beautiful November day here in Michigan. We're at our home store in Northville, Michigan. And we hope that you will come in and uh, we can recommend a book to you in person at your local Barnes & Noble. But for now, we have three. And Margie, why don't you take it away? Okay, we've got some great ones today to go along with Indigenous Peoples Heritage Month, which we love to celebrate. So the first one that I have for y'all today is called There, There by Tommy Orange. This book takes place in Oakland, California, and it basically follows 12 people, which seems like a lot. It's not really because these people are all connected in ways that they either know or don't know. So they're all involved in going to the Big Oakland powwow. So among the people that are traveling to the Big Oakland powwow is Jackie Redfeller, who has just become sober and is trying to make it back to a family that she left behind. We've got a gentleman that is pulling his life together after his uncle's death. We have a 14-year-old coming to perform a traditional dance for the very first time. There's a storyteller setting up a booth to gather oral histories and a woman drawn to the gathering after a lifetime of denying her native heritage. So this book is really interesting because it focuses on the dichotomy of belonging to a large urban center that is also ancestral land. These people get pulled in two different directions. They think of themselves as people from Oakland, (laughs) but they also have this underlying heritage that some of them embrace fully. Some of them don't always feel as comfortable about it. The problem with the Big Oakland powwow is there is also a group of people that are planning on robbing it using guns that they have 3D printed. So everything comes to a big conclusion, but the real journey is in all these separate voices that meld together that basically provide a story of trauma and substance abuse and trying to come to terms with being somebody that is from two places, even though they are the same place. So that is There There by Tommy Orange. The second book I want to talk about is called Empire of Wild. It's by Cherie Dimeline. This novel focuses on Joan. She's a Métis woman, so she's part of the indigenous community of First Nations. I would never do justice to the definition of Métis. If you want to look that up, there are some very, very eloquent people giving definitions of what that actually means. So I strongly suggest that you look that up and take a listen. 
So the problem for Joan is that her husband has disappeared. She left her small rural community when she was young and goes out and sees the world and has some adventures and then comes home with a husband. Her and her husband, Victor, have a strong, supportive, loving relationship, and everything is going very smoothly for the two of them until Victor wants Joan to sell some of her land that has been left to her by her father, and she flat out refuses. So he leaves the house to kind of cool off, and he never comes back. So 11 months later, they still haven't seen Victor. The community has basically stopped looking, but Joan cannot move past the fact that he's just gone. One of the reviews I read called it a Schrodinger's marriage, which I thought was fantastic. Mm. Like, she's both married and not married because nobody knows where her husband is. Mm. So one day, she stumbles into a tent revival, and the minister there is Victor, except he doesn't recognize her. And he insists that his name is Eugene Wolfe. And that he's a minister bringing people to Jesus. She's warned away from this revival by the person that is running it. His name is Thomas. And he tells her, Victor is dead. Go away. Don't come back. So she suspects that there's something very, very wrong going on here, obviously. And that's when the whole idea of the Rougarou comes in. So the Rougarou is kind of a native myth. The closest approximation would probably be like a werewolf but not quite. It's kind of the boogeyman that that the community uses to keep people in line to say, children come home before dark, husbands don't mistreat your wives, don't do anything against the community. So now she has to uncover what's really going on here. She joins forces with her aunt and her nephew, and she realizes that she's going to have to fight a Rougarou. Does the Rougarou she must fight represent whatever has a hold on Victor? Or is it the grief that's holding her hostage? Because we're really not sure if the minister is Victor or not. That is what she's trying to find out. It is a fascinating and really well-written novel. And that is Empire of Wild by Cherie Dimaline. All right. Thanks, Margie. I have a book that I read this past summer that I absolutely loved. And it is a debut author by the name of Dennis E. Staples. He's an Ojibwe writer from Bemidji, Minnesota, about two hours north of uh, where Louise Erdrich is actually from. Um, his debut novel is called This Town Sleeps. And it's about a gay man in his mid-20s who begins a relationship with a classmate named Shannon. And it turns out that Shannon was actually his bully when they were in high school together. There's also in the background a mystery in the town that no one seems to talk about that a 17-year-old kid when he was in high school was murdered. And nobody really knows why. So Marion, the main character, is trying to figure out what happened to this boy in high school and why does no one want to talk about it? What is the secret that sort of pervades the community there? And also the supernatural element that's kind of coming into play. So he's trying to figure out not only his own sexuality, who he is in life and what he wants, but also trying to reconcile with the demons of his past. And it does take place in upstate Minnesota, and it's just a hauntingly beautiful novel. I really loved it. Dennis E. Staples, um, it is called This Town Sleeps. He was also the recipient of an Octavia E. Butler Memorial Scholarship. So that's some talent right there. So go check that one out. All right. Well, thanks for listening to Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast and your TBR top off. My name is James. You can follow me on Instagram at jamesreadingbooks. And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Bookbrain. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Happy reading. 
Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 